you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 1. 1 Samuel chapter 1. We will read the whole chapter. 1 Samuel 1. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all his, her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost at the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. And as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah said, No, my lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, and I, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Then they rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord a yearly sacrifice to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up. For she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. 
Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son, and she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with the three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. When the chi- and the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O oh my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed. And the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And she worshiped the Lord there. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come before you as your children, not by rights, but by the mercy of your Son who died for us and made us your people. I pray that by this word you would make us more like your son, that you would sharpen us and quicken us, help us to know you better, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever wanted something so badly that you thought about it, devised ways to get this thing? When I was a kid, a lot of times we would, there's something that you you found out probably about the middle of the year about five or six months before your birthday, and you pestered your parents, or at least I did. Maybe you all were better. But I pestered my parents over and over. And finally, by the time you come to whatever event it was, whether it was before Christmas or before, my birth, before your birthday, usually for me it was a Lego set. And so naturally you do what any kid does and go around and shake all the presents. You know, the ones that jingle are obviously Legos, or if you're unfortunate, a puzzle, um, or a game. Nobody. Um, there were a few times I was disappointed, because I thought I had correctly guessed what I, what I had, and then it turns out it was something else. Um, I think we've all been there. We've tried, to, we've tried to, we've wanted something really badly, and we've tried to get it. We've tried to ask for it, and... But why do we get disappointed? Is it because we're owed this particular gift? That's not the reason. We're we're just disa- we're disappointed. In our story, we see someone who wants a child, who desperately yearns for a child, and who is probably disappointed and perhaps a little bitter at the fact that she has been childless. But what we see here is the point of the story is Hannah's mourning being turned to joy. The songs that were chosen were appropriate and divinely orchestrated, I think, on the mercy of our God. For in this story, we see the mercy of God to his people. In Samuel, we're introduced to the first of three huge characters we see throughout the book of books of First and Second Samuel, which is... Samuel, and uh, Samuel, David, and Saul really summarize what the books, uh, what that book is about, and we're introduced to him. We're introduced to the birth of Samuel, to Hannah. Um, now, why is this story here? What is the purpose of it? We we see the barren being made fruitful. In a time of darkness, um, from the Judges to Samuel, God brings life 
out of something which previously had no life. So we're going to begin um, just with the first section. We begin with a familiar start to a story. It has a certain ring to it that we read in earlier passages of Scripture. You see the phrase, there was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, and it goes down through some of his descendants. This line has a ring to it because it's a similar beginning to the birth of Samson. And you see the author is connecting the two stories by similar, you see a couple that is fruitless. You see, um, like Samuel, Samson's parents were barren. And you see, it goes through some of his genealogy. And both of them have this ring of someone who is sworn to the service of the Lord before his birth and someone who is taken on essentially a Nazarite vow. But the, real, the question we should ask is, where in the biblical storyline do we find ourselves? We're sometimes tempted to read these stories as if, like dwarves, they spring up out of rocks. They have no context, no predecessors, and it's just random stories assembled together. Um, but where we find this story situated... Samuel finds, likely finds his birth, obviously, towards the end of Eli's 40-year reign as a judge. In 1 Samuel 7, we see that Samuel doesn't begin reigning until, as a judge until 20 years after the battle of Aphek, described in 1 Samuel 4, and the death of Eli and his sons when God cuts off his household. So perhaps the intervening reign of a judge would be the reign of Samuel, uh, the reign of Samson, who is said to have reigned for 20 years, um, and perhaps is the intervening person between Eli and Samuel. We, we notice, if you read the book of Judges, that Samson's reign is one that he probably doesn't throw off the Philistines, although he definitely deals a pretty big blow to it when God revives his strength and he knocks over the temple. So similarly, the book of Samuel will find itself in a very bleak period in Israel. Essentially, the message of Judges is everyone did what was right in their own eyes, and it was not good for them. <laughs> so look at the book of Judges and do the opposite of most of what's going on in there. We find, we find corrupt Levites. We find corrupt people. The best judges are the ones where the very least about them is described towards the beginning of the book. As the book of Judges goes on, we see the leaders getting more and more corrupt to the end where you have a macabre story about a Levite that I won't go into too many details about that has the ring of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah where the author of Judges is essentially saying, you're worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. This is where we find Samuel. It's a dark period. Dark period in this, in, this, in this history. Samuel then begins to describe the transition from this to a time of prosperity, to the time of kingship to the time where they are starting to see the covenant coming to fruition. 
And we begin with the description of a man named Elkanah. Elkanah is a man, we are, you see his generate, some of his generations. We don't really know much about that. But what we can gather is that Elkanah was probably fairly high-born and probably fairly well-off. Somebody that has two wives is typically a sign of royalty or wealth. Um, a lot of people think that in the Old Testament, people just went around and, with two wives all the time, multiple wives all the time. But usually when you see multiple wives, it's somebody that's a king or aspiring to be a king and has wealth. So prominent example, Gideon takes on more wives and he names his son, my father, the king, after denying that he wants to be a king. You see Jacob, who has a lot of um, cattle, he has two wives. He kind of accidentally comes into two wives. Um, but this was a sign of royalty. This was a sign of wealth. His first wife, who's likely his first wife, is Hannah, whose name means favored one. And undoubtedly, she is perhaps wondering, how indeed am I favored? She doesn't have, she doesn't, has, God hasn't given her children. This puts women in a very tenuous position, in a very um, loose position in society. And we're immediately given a contrast between Hannah and her rival, uh, Elkanah's other wife, Penina. She was fruitful and had many children. Verse 2, um, the name of, he had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children. But Hannah had no children. And we're told later that she, Penina gets a portion for all of her sons and daughters, implying that she's very fruitful. Um, in the verse, but the, the contrast in verse 2, where it says Penina had children and Hannah had no children, leads us to expect that God is about to work in this one's favor, in Hannah's favor. We are told that Elkanah would habitually go up to worship and offer sacrifices. You see the phrase year by year in verse 3. It is one of his habit, his practice. Thus, Elkanah, despite some of his uh, failings, is, seen, is shown as a godly, pious man who attempts to lead his wife, his wives and children to worship. His family had division and strife, yet Elkanah was careful to lead his family to sacrifice and worship yearly. As we are told that he went to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh. The phrase is often used to refer to armies, but clearly refers back or clearly refers back to God's infinite power and command. This isn't just some um, loose connection out there. God is the God of resources and power, and thus God is the one, the Lord of hosts, who Hannah and Elkanah can, fall, can call upon. This sets up the expectation of Hannah. That she can call upon him. The family and regular worship of Elkanah is a marked contrast between Eli and his two sons, who we see described towards the end of chapter 2 as worthless sons. 
Hophni and Phinehas are two Egyptian names, and they were scoundrels. They're not described as, as being very good people. They take the fattest portions. They serve the Lord out of a desire to get, to get back. They were worthless people. The priestly, the priestly leaders and the, leader, the religious leaders lived lives that pro- provided a huge contrast between some of the people like Elkanah. They were scandals. The author here then begins to zoom out. We were told his habitual practice. He go, would go up year to year. We're told the yearly... Um, the yearly practice. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her. Though the Lord had closed her womb, and her rival used to provoke grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. This is a yearly practice. It's not a one-off thing. It's not like Penina woke up and said, I think I'm going to go here to take Hannah. That's not what happened. It was a yearly practice, probably because she felt superior at Hannah's inability to have children and Penina's ability to have many children. We are told twice that the Lord had closed her womb, and the Lord is the one described as opening the womb. Um, What this is doing is underscoring the fact that God is testing Hannah. It is a thing of God. Um, in the book of Genesis, often we find barrenness as um, through various of the patriarchs, and it brings to mind the question when you're reading, how will God, how will God keep his promise? Abraham is barren, and they often try to do what we do and help God out with his promises to us. Um, but here, Hannah's suffering I think came as a test for her. God had a plan and a purpose behind that. And let me encourage us. In suffering, we don't immediately know the purpose. The point of the various scriptures and what they talk about with regards to suffering is that there's not one cause to all of our suffering. You can't boil it down to one explanation. It's like, oh, well, I sinned. That's why. There's no automatic answer to it. But what we understand from suffering is that God is sovereign, and as a good and merciful Father, He has purposes for us in it. That doesn't make it easy. As we see in, from here, from Hannah, it was not easy for it in any way. She was weeping, see emotions coming out of her, praying, and per, you know, perhaps she prayed every year. And God eventually did answer her. To quote the song, Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Penina taunted her year after year. Um, Verse 6. Her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. Now imagine this scenario. Hannah and 
Panina both go to worship. And every year, she knows what to expect. She knows that she will go to pray and to worship, and his other wife will come here specific, specifically make a way just to irritate her, to provoke her. The taunting then obviously resulted in Hannah being greatly distressed and weeping. Elkanah asks, why are you weeping? Um, verse 8, her husband said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Elkanah is attempting, in the unhelpful way that husbands sometimes have, to comfort her. Am I not worth more to you than ten sons? This was a fairly common expression. Um, Ruth 4, they use a similar expression. And he's saying, am I not enough for you? Obviously, he didn't quite understand where Hannah was. When he says, um, why is your heart sad? What he's literally saying is, why is your heart bad? So he's saying, why are you bitter? Why are you being bitter right here? Am I not worth more to you than that? Obviously, that doesn't help the situation. Um, but as we see in Hannah, God meets and gives us grace to endure. I think another thing we can just derive from this and from Elkanah's example is that you can still be a godly, pious example to your family, even if you don't get everything right. Elkanah is not portrayed in this story as a bad guy. Obviously, he makes mistakes, like pretty much everyone. But his family is still a contrast to the priestly family. There are some people in there that are not, um, not helpful, but, and he is far, far from perfect, but he goes up year by year. He attempts to lead his family in worship, to sacrifice. Even if we have made mistakes in the past, and even if we continue to make mistakes, God can still use us. God can still use us in our families and use us as a godly example. Use us to lead our family in worship. We transition here. Hannah... Um, reacts to all this in verse 9 and after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh Hannah rose now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly and she vowed a vow and said O Lord of hosts if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant but will give to your servant a son and I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. Hannah could have reacted to all this, this habitual action, in a number of ways. We all, do, we all react to stress differently. Um, I mean, some of us eat. Some of us try to lash out. I'm not really the lashing out type, but some of us brood. Everybody... Everybody reacts to stress differently. Hannah could have chosen any one of these methods, but what does she do? She goes, she prays. We see this response of weeping and prayer to be a common one. Often they're inter intermingled. 
Psalm 6, for example, the psalmist is worn out from grieving and he drenches his couch with tears. Hannah similarly finds herself in a period of great distress. Hannah enters the temple in great distress to bring her burdens before the Lord. We see Eli is said to be sitting on the um, sitting on the chair at the doorposts. This is probably a sitting in judgment, a sitting at at the temple and in judgment over Israel, over his people. He's the overseer at the temple. And the deep, the deep distress of Hannah, when it says she wept bitterly, in verse 10, she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. This phrase is literally bitter in spirit. Hannah was, was greatly vexed, perhaps a little bitter at the silence of God. But she takes it to him. She prays and she pours out her heart. Hannah, in effect, promises to give Samuel back to God and swears that he will be a Nazarite. She would not allow a razor to touch his head and he would abstain from wine. In return, Hannah would give him back to the Lord. She says, God, if you will give me this child, I will give him back to you. We read the story of Abraham earlier in the sacrifice of of Isaac. Um, Abraham promised to give Isaac back when God required it, and this was an act of great faith. God said, give me your only son, and after, after that, he did. Even before Hannah has the promised child, she promises to give him to the Lord in his service. As a true daughter of Abraham, she acted in faith she, to give him back to God. This is childlike faith which trusts in God's good purposes. There's no bargaining or bitterness in this prayer. There's humility. You see humility, you see someone who trusts on God. She prays a selfless prayer that God would answer her. And I think one of the things this does is this points to the mercy of God. God is not obligated to give her a child. God is not obligated to answer any sort of, well, if you give them to me, I'll give them back to you. And again, I don't think this is bargaining, so I'm not implying that she was. But God is not obligated to yield to our requests. But God hears our afflictions. God knows our grief. Now in Christ, we have a high priest who is not unacquainted with our grief. And I think one of the great aspects of the work of Christ is that God hears our afflictions. He answers them in mercy if we are his children. Do you find yourself in the middle of a battle and despairing? Don't be afraid that God is not hearing you because he will. He does. That doesn't mean God's always going to answer the prayer in the way that you expect. Because sometimes the answer is more of himself 
to help you through the times of trouble. We read, we read that Hannah's prayer is so fervent that, it, that she's kind of muttering and her mouth is moving, but she's not speaking. Kind of almost gives you an idea of meditation, what that is. A deep concentration and a humbling of her posture. This was the sort of prayer that she was praying. And also another contrast with Eli. Apparently, fervent prayer was so rare at Shiloh that Eli mistakes it for drunkenness. Oh, are you drunk? What are you, what are you doing there? Moving your mouth? This is, a, this is an irony because the priest was quick to dismiss what was recognized as drunkenness in, a, in this pious woman, yet his own children he could not rein in. Hophni and Phinehas are described as wicked scoundrels getting fat off of the fatted portions that were supposed to be offered to the Lord. Hannah responds by saying that she's not troubled in spirit. Another way of saying that is she's not, or that she is not a worthless woman, but she is troubled in spirit. She's not drunk. She's just distressed. And the interesting thing about the phrase worthless woman is, again, it's a contrast with Eli's own sons, who are described in the same phrase as worthless sons in the chapter 2. And I think another point, again, here to be made is be careful to take the beam out of your own eye before attempting to pluck the mote out of somebody else's. The famous line, judge not, from Matthew 7, has not told us never to make moral declarations of judgments against people but to say beware that we are not being hypocritical, that we have other people in our lives telling us and that we are repentant before the Lord in those ways we seek to correct in others. Eli is making a hypocritical judgment here. He is unable to recognize the fervency, the prayer of a, of a pious woman. And the problem will ultimately come back on his own head. Chapter 4 describes the Battle of Aphek in which both of his sons die, and then Eli dies by falling off a chair because he was old and very heavy. Eli responds and, and agrees and says, Go in peace. May the God of Israel grant your petitions which you asked of him. The wording here is literally the asking which you asked. So it's unclear if Eli even knew what the content of her prayer was, but he was, in effect, granting it. What effect does this have on Hannah? Verse 17, Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. And the woman went her way and ate and her face was no longer sad. This is her trusting in the promises of God. She trusted that God would keep his promises, and this is what faith is, is trusting in the promises of God despite not seeing their actuality right now. Have you ever witnessed the change in the look on a kid asking you for something? My kids normally expect that I'll say no, which is... 60% right. Um, 
But then when you say yes and it's kind of unexpected and the light comes on their eyes and the face changes. Um, this is the look that Hannah has. Her face changes. She goes out. She eats. She knows that God will put an end to her misery, to her suffering. She immediately goes out, um, and then God grants her request. They rose early in the morning, worshiped before the Lord, went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son and named his name Samuel. God answered her prayer. God was faithful to what he said. The Lord, that phrase, the Lord remembered Hannah. The Lord remembers his promises and he is faithful to accomplish them. Even if we don't see him immediately, God will accomplish those. Finally, final few verses are talking about the return, Hannah's fulfillment of her vow to the Lord. Hannah and Elkanah, Elkanah goes up to offer the yearly sacrifice. This is a habit with Elkanah again. Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up. For she said to her husband, as soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Hannah didn't go up immediately until he was weaned. But she did would do what the Lord required of her. So she stayed and nursed and weaned him, and 25, the outcome of her pledged, they slaughtered the bull and brought the child to offerings to God. The repayment of her, her pledge. The child is the Lord. And in a way, Hannah saw more clearly what is true for us of our children. Now, I don't think most of us are going to offer our children a near perpetual sacrifice in the temple that I'm aware of. Um, but children are indeed a gift from God. They're entrusted to us. And one of the most life-changing things we can do is the effect to have on, on kids when they get older to say, you know, we always were at church, we always heard... Bible, or always taught the gospel, knew what it was, and to not have one of those drastic testimonies. Those, and I'm not knocking God, that God can change people's lives very suddenly, and I'm grateful for that. God is a miracle-working God who brings life out of barrenness, out of darkness. But there is a special mercy in God to where some of the most prominent impact we can have on our children as parents is to faithfully teach them. Faithfully teach them in the things of the Lord. We're told later that one of the qualifications for an elder is that he rule his family well. Now, we can't control the outcome. And there are anomalies, I think, in the children of, of elders. I think one of the qualifications is that if you are faithful over little, then you can be faithful over much. If you can't control your own household, if you can't teach your own household, how can you teach the household of God? And so I think for all of us, one of the things that we ought to aspire to do, and again, 
as I mentioned earlier, Elkana did this imperfectly. I'm not saying, oh, you have to have this perfect system down, and if you're not, then you're a terrible parent. It's not what I'm saying. We can be faithful. God will reward us. God is delighted to see the good works of his children, even performed imperfectly. If, a kid, if my kid draws me a, a picture or colors in something that's a little outside the lines, I don't return this and say, sorry, it's not as good as Monet. I'm happy to see the good things that the kids offer me. In the same way, God is happy to see us through His Spirit doing things, good works that He accepts. God loves to see His children performing good works. All wrought by His Spirit. But God is not up there judging people critically. Oh, wasn't good enough. You are His child, and God delights to see you doing His work. In closing, I'd like for us to consider a couple applications briefly. First and most obviously, the season is bleak, and the season was hard for Hannah. Hannah was vexed yearly. It doesn't say how long she was vexed, but it was long enough to where um, it was long enough to where Hannah was considered barren, and it was a regular practice. She was taunting her. She was provoking her. She was despairing, but she didn't let it, let it make her bitter. What did she do? How did she respond? She poured out her heart, her emotions, her soul, her problems to a good and merciful God. She trusted that God is good, that God, by definition, is, is a good God, and whatever comes from his hand are good and for his glory. Are we quick to pray when troubles overwhelm us? Do we lash out at others? Do we treat stress in a way that's not in despair, in a way that assumes that God is not present or that God is not good? God is merciful. God answers our prayers. And we can trust that what he has in store for us is good things. Secondly, and related to this, God is merciful but won't always answer prayer on our timetable. We want him to. And I understand that. I've been there. Sometimes still kind of there. Hannah undoubtedly had waited for children for years. She, this kind of thing is very dis, dis, made her despair. A lot of pent-up emotions. A lot of praying to the Lord and pouring out her soul to the Lord. Yet God's plans were for her best. God had a plan for his children, and he was merciful to Hannah. Thirdly, one of the means of glorifying God is through the godly parenting of our children. For those of us that have children, we are lent them, and we are entrusted them for a time. For however brief. And 
it is our duty. Deuteronomy 6 it talks about the duties of a parent to their household that talk about these things. The Lord our Lord is one, is one Lord. Talk about these things when you rise up, when you sit down. And it's not, you know, it's saying to be constantly at this. It's a hard work, one that I'm still learning because all my kids are under seven. So it's not like I've got as much experience as some of you. Um, but one of the common means of evangelism that God gives us is through our children. God allows us to steer them towards the gospel. He has given them to us for his glory, and therefore we ought to act accordingly. Another trajectory we see is a downward spiral of sin for an application. The course of these stories is oftentimes, this is kind of a little bit sort of related to the previous point, um, is kids following the course of their parents. This is true oftentimes in faithfulness. This is true oftentimes in unfaithfulness. We see Eli and Hophni and Phinehas and judgment brought upon them. We see people continuing in previous trajectories. Kids will adopt, often adopt one of the vices of one or both parents. What should we do about this? Pray and help that, that God would help us break the spiral. Pray that God would have mercy upon us and on our kids. One of the things I think that is neat, that is in contrast of God's character, is God visits the iniquity of the children to the third or fourth generation, and yet he has mercy to thousands of generations. My sins there are many, but his mercy is more. Where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. There is grace that exceeds our ability to sin. Finally, I think we see the arrival, the birth of hope. Mourning being turned into joy. One of the things we're tempted to do is take a look out on our civilization and think, this is the worst it's ever been. That is not true. <laughs> there have been a lot of bleak times. But... As Chesterton said, Christendom has died and risen again many times. He said it better, but this is a summary. Because it had a God who knew how to rise from the dead. So don't be too bleak. Cultivate hope. Have faith that the God who promises that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church will hold to those promises. We think we're in the worst times ever. But God brings forth joy and hope. We can trust him and his goodness that he knows what he's doing. In Samuel, it was a terrible time. Judges, go read through the book of Judges over the course of a month or two. It's, it's a downward spiral. But yet, what do we see? The birth of Samuel... A down period in Saul, then God brings David, the kingdom. God can bring 
hope out of what we think is hopelessness. He has good purposes. And our ultimate hope is in Christ. Not in what we, not in things we see around us, but all of our hope is, is based on faith and the expectation of Christ. Let us trust in him and hope on God who can deliver us from our troubles in whom we have the ultimate hope. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are good. We thank you that we can trust you and that your mercy is more. Pray that you would help us to trust you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.